Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Paul's letter to Philemon. It's just after Titus, just before Hebrews. We'll be looking at Philemon verses 8 through 19. Let's go to our God in prayer, asking for his help in understanding this text. Our gracious God, we thank you for this word, the very words of God, the inspired, inerrant, preserved revelation from you, God, you who love us. Help us to see clearly your truths here and help us to apply them by the power of your spirit. Amen. This is Philemon, verses 8 through 19. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your, own, of your owing me, even your own self. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word, Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, last week we began a brief three-sermon series in Paul's short letter, this short book to Philemon. Last week we began to see that the beat of God's heart is for the sound gospel application to our lives. God is the God of reconciliation. He is reconciling the world to himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. But sometimes the church needs to be reminded of this work of reconciliation, perhaps all the time. Sometimes the church needs to make application to each other of this good news of Jesus. We need to apply the gospel to our own relationships. Now, last week, we got our groundings of grace. We recall our identity in Christ. We recall that we are in Christ, that we are prisoners of Christ Jesus and prisoners for Christ Jesus, that we are co-laborers, that we are in Christ. And so, in, because we are in Christ, we are members of one another. And because of this union with Christ and communion with Christ and with one another, we can move out in mediation and service to Christ. And the road to reconciliation is hard, but the goal of reunion and fellowship is worth the drive. God shows us the way through Paul's tender letter that is full of affection, full of love for his brother Philemon and his newborn spiritual son Onesimus. How Paul moves in the first seven verses is God's designed way for all of us in all of our relationships. Before we address the problems or grievances that we have with one another, we must recall our shared identity and the common graces that we have from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have grace and peace from the Father and the Son through the ministry of the Spirit. We must Take that to heart. We must know that foundation. Paul fronts his letter with love and grace before he makes a loving appeal to his brother Philemon. And now we see what this appeal is. I talked last week that there is an appeal. And now finally we see what this appeal is. But we must notice 
that even through this appeal, love leads the way. He doesn't um, have love take a backseat now that he is ready to make an appeal to Philemon. Love begins and continues the drive and finishes the drive to this appeal to his brother Philemon. The point here this morning is absorbing the cost of offenses and trusting in God's good providence, we can move out in usefulness to Christ. The love that Paul has for Christ and the love that Paul has for his brother Philemon drives him in these next verses. In verse 10, he says that he has an appeal for Philemon. But again, read with me verses 8 and 9. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you. Although he makes an appeal, he mentions this appeal in verse 10, he actually doesn't tell us what it is yet. He doesn't tell us what this appeal is until verses 16 and 17. We know that it has something to do with that elephant in the room, with Onesimus, that one who has hand-delivered the letter to Philemon. Again, what an encounter that must have been as Philemon sees for the first time again his runaway slave, his Onesimus, his useless servant. But Paul doesn't actually say what he's asking Philemon to do until verses 16 and 17, with only eight or nine verses left in this short letter. Again, do we see that Paul is fronting this letter with love? His appeal, he mentions the appeal, but he doesn't tell us what the appeal is until just the right time, but he wants to make crystal clear, love is motivating me to do this. Love is is motivating me to make this appeal. I am compelled by the compassion of Christ Jesus to make this appeal to you, and I love you dearly. So you consider how Paul over and over again refuses to exercise some apostolic right of command. He says in verse 14, I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. And so do you see his heart here? In verse 8, he says, I am bold enough to command you to do what is required. Don't think that I'm not bold enough. Philemon, I have all the boldness that God has given me to issue a command, to issue an apostolic directive, a you must, a thus saith the Lord. I could do that. And who would ever question the Apostle Paul's boldness? You read his actions in the book of Acts, you hear his words and he's, as he's writing to people, and you know that man was bold. He had a holy zeal for God and a courage unmatched by any mere mortal. And what Paul will ask Philemon to do, Philemon should do it. What Paul's going to say, Philemon, this is required. He says it in verse 8 to command you to do what is required. Paul knows that what he's going to appeal for Philemon to do is not out of Christian character. It is the right thing. There really isn't any gray area as far as Paul is concerned regarding how Philemon should act towards Onesimus, which is to receive Onesimus no longer as a bondservant, but as a brother. In other words, to receive him no longer as a slave, but as a dear Christian brother, a co-laborer, for Christ. And there you have Paul's own sentiments about uh, slavery that, as I mentioned last week, he's all about the ending of slavery, but he's in a context in which he cannot unilaterally remove it all. But individually, yes, if Onesimus can buy his freedom, or if Philemon can, out of love, free his own slave, he should do it. However, he says, verse 9, I'm not going to command you. I will instead appeal to you. I will urge you, not because I'm an apostle, not because I'm throwing my apostolic weight at you and saying, you must do this, but because, Philemon, I love you. I'm urging you because I love you. 
These aren't mere words. These are real words of real love for this brother, Philemon. And so he approaches Philemon as he does the Corinthians. The only other letter that is more affectionate is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. It is just dripping with his affection for these Corinthians who have very little affection for him, if you read that letter. These people who are actually questioning his own apostleship. When he could say, I'm the apostle, get in line. He, again, tells them that he loves them. He does that here individually with Philemon. He says, yes, I can issue the command, and you couldn't do anything about it. I could say, thus saith the Lord, Philemon, receive him, and that's the end of it. But I love you. I'm not going to command you. I know it's going to be, I know it's hard what I'm going to ask you to do. So I want, to, I want love to lead the way. And in verse 10, he says, I am making this appeal out of love for you and for another, for Onesimus. Let's not forget about Onesimus. In a sense here, he's saying, rejoice with me, Philemon. Rejoice because I have become a spiritual father to Onesimus. This is a time for joy, Philemon. This is not a time for bitterness. It's not a time for holding on to offenses, holding on to grievances. It's not a time of focusing on what Onesimus has done against you. This is a time for joy. Onesimus is a Christian. He's a brother. Receive him as such. Verse 12, he says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. So the apostle sends this appeal to Philemon. And while he's doing that, he's sending his very heart. He wants Philemon to see that behind this request, not a command, but this urgent request, behind this is Paul's heart. Literally, Paul writes, whom I sent back to you, him, this is my heart. It's emphatic. I'm sending Onesimus back to you. This one is my heart, my very heart. If you see Onesimus, you see my heart. You see Onesimus, you see me. You might not want to see me, Paul, because you're offended by what he had done. And I have made no offense against you, Philemon. And so when you see Onesimus, don't see all that he has done against you. See me. See my love for you. And he will often, Paul will often connect his spiritual offspring with his own heart. Again, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2, he says, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. What a minister Paul was. Minister of of love and compassion. Yes, of apostolic courage and, and boldness, but always this fervent love for those to whom he was ministering. And this word for heart is not the one that we would normally expect, cardia. It's the word splachna, and it sounds like something that's splattered against the wall. And it's always used metaphorically in the New Testament, but it refers literally to the bowels, to the guts, to the person's innards. He's saying, I'm giving you my guts. I'm giving you my innards, my, my bowels, the things that I, I have to have. He said, I'm giving you my, my deepest affections. I cannot look... Deeper. This is who I am. This is, I, I love you. I love Onesimus. I love the Lord. And I am giving you myself. And I appeal to you on the basis of my warmest affections that you receive this man as a brother. For so he is. And so he's saying, brother, this one is me. I give you Onesimus. I give you myself. I give you my love. We have to remember this is important for, for how we operate as well. The next step of reconciliation is to make known your love abundantly to the one who offended you or to the one by whom you have been offended or if you are the one who offended them. The first step, as we saw last week, was to see our common union and communion with Christ and our identity in Jesus. And springing from that union and communion should be a heart of authentic and abundant love for our brother, for our sister. When Christians position themselves with an us versus them mentality, there is no longer any hope of restoration. 
Reconciliation is, is out the door when it's a me versus them. But when we lead with love for one another, when we affirm that we are all on the same side, we leave the door open for reconciliation. This was one way that Socrates tried to disarm his opponents that hated him, that frankly were annoyed by him. He would go to whoever thought he had the truth. He'd go to a poet, he'd go to a historian, a mathematician, or whatever it was, and he'd say, I heard that you know the truth, and I want to know it. I'm going to ask you a lot of questions, question after question after question, not because I don't like you, but because you say you have truth, and I want to know it. I'm saying I don't have the truth. But of course, it's constant questioning, which showed their own ignorance. They didn't really know what they said they knew. That was quite annoying to, to them. And so Socrates called himself a, a gadfly, that fly that's on a horse that's buzzing around or biting. But he says, you guys, I'm on your side. We're all together. It, it's us against falsehood. Let's find out this truth together. It's a good mentality. It's a good uh, attitude to have. And, and how much more also than is the case for us who have the truth. Socrates didn't have the truth. We have him who is the way and the truth and the life. How much more then shall we be on the same side trying to figure out the nature of the problem before we get offended at the offense, supposed offense, or real offense, whatever it is. Now my wife, when she has a corrective word for me, she will remind me of her love for me. She'll do this with her words. She'll do this with how she approaches she approaches me, and I know that she's on my side. I know that she is telling me how I offended her, how I hurt her, not because she is against me, because we're in this together. We're in this marriage together, and because she loves me. It's the same case with godly parents, how they treat their children. They love their children. Children, sadly, sometimes think that it's a, a parents versus the kids in the home. Mom versus the kid. Dad versus the kid. And they're teaming up against the children. And no, children, that's, that's not what we're doing. In fact, the parents are on the same side with each other. And the parents are on the same side as you, children. The parents love you. And they want everyone to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're all on this road of sanctification together. And thankfully, the parents are just a little bit wiser than the children. We're all in this together, on the same side, the same team. This is how the church's doors remain open for peace, for unity, for edification, for restoration. Paul's heart of love, however, doesn't remain just in the abstract Oh, we love love, and that's great. It doesn't remain up there. Love is seen in action. Verses 17 and 19. Consider how Paul is not just making a loving appeal, but he's also um, putting his money where his mouth is, literally. Verses 17 and 19. So if you consider me, your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. He's not being manipulative there. He's being warm-hearted for Philemon. He loves Philemon. He loves Onesimus. And he is going to show his love for both of them. He is in good company, Paul is. Literally, in the company of the good Samaritan. Well, I just read earlier today, the Jewish man who fell among the robbers, was stripped, was beaten, was half dead. He was coldly passed by a priest, then a Levite, both of whom went to the other side just to avoid the man. Remarkably and graciously, the half-blood Samaritan loves this half-dead Jew. He didn't say to him, be warm and well-fed, sure hope someone looks at your condition with compassion and does something about it, but I have a business meeting to attend to. 
didn't say be warm and well-fed. He does something. He acts. He doesn't just pass by. Compassionately, he treats the man's wounds. He carries him on his own animal to a nearby inn, and then he pays whatever the bill would be from the innkeeper for this man. Takes care of all of the costs. And, of course, the Good Samaritan is actually a picture of God's love in action. Surely the Son of God has proven his action and love for us. He saw us all dead, not half dead, but all dead. He saw us as a bloody, venomous mess. And with his word, he gave us life. And with his Holy Spirit oil, dressed our wounds. And he has paid all of our debts for us. And with this background, and we can see what Paul is doing, he is not dying for Onesimus. Paul would be an ineffective savior for Onesimus. He didn't do that. Paul being a sinner. But because his savior died for him, paying the penalty for his own sins, absorbing the eternal cost of his most grievous offenses, he says he will pay Philemon. And the fact that Paul writes this with his own hand, saying that he will repay Philemon, this means that he's actually writing a receipt for Philemon. Back then, this was how they formed contracts. The person taken out a loan would write his own hand, with his own hand, the amount of money the person owed, the period of time for the payment, and and all the other uh, monetary particulars. And then he would sign it with his own signature. So we have this little contract in this letter. And so what Paul is saying is, whatever the monetary obligations, I will find a way to fulfill them. Whatever the financial burdens, I, Paul, the old man prisoner, will carry these burdens. Even though I can't work as a tent maker right now because I'm in prison. But I'll find the money. I'll find a way, Philemon. If it means bringing you, Philemon, and Onesimus, the one who's right in front of you, if it means bringing both of you together, I will gladly pay whatever the cost is. Not because I owe you anything, Philemon. Not because I owe Onesimus anything. Because I love you. Christ's church absorbs the cost of one another's offenses. Love is patient with others when they sin against us. Love is kind when others offend us. Love does not insist on its own way. Love does not exact every ounce of rightness from others. It doesn't demand, you must pay every bit of what you've done against me. Love does not rejoice when others commit wrongdoing against us, but rejoices that with the truth of grace, we can be reconciled to one another. Love bears all sin burdens. It hopes for the best in all offenses, and love endures all grievances. And because we love each other, With love, we cover a multitude of sins. And with love, we are patient with one another as we offend each other. Because God has forgiven us our 10,000 talents of sin debt, we can cover the cost of each other's 100 denarii of sin debt. For what is two or three months' worth of sin debt against us compared to our sin debt that would give us that would take us lifetimes to pay off by God's grace we are kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us but remember this is not love in the abstract this is love touching down here i don't ever preach a sermon that is general, although I hope it is applied across the board to all Christians, I have you and me specifically in mind. I have you and your relationships with one another in mind. I have Cross Creek in mind. All the saints, all the covenant children, all the regular attendees, the, those who want this place to be their home. I have you in mind. And so there's real talk, straight talk as some say. So let me give it to you. 
the last two congregational meetings in August and then in November, people, I'm not going to give you any names, I'm not going to get that specific, but people said and did hurtful things before, during, and after these meetings. It doesn't matter what side you were on. It doesn't matter how you voted in either or both meetings. I'm not singling out one individual. I'm not singling out one side, if you will. I'm saying that as a church, some of us have said hurtful things, things that were insensitive, things that were offensive before, during, and since. And these then are offenses. These then are grievances. These then are sins. Not one of us is spotless in all of this. We're all hurting. We all need the grace and peace from, our, from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And we could all do a lot better loving one another and leading with love. And I am including myself here. As I've admitted, I've not perfectly led in love in any of my relationships. Yes, I get in my own way at times. Yes, I sin. We all do. We all say things that we regret, or hope we would regret them. So the question for you all, for all of us, is how will we move forward? How will we respond when people sin against us and when we shun our sin, and we sin against others. What will we do? Will we humbly have our eyes open to our own contribution to the problem? How we said something that can be taken in a nasty way, even if we didn't intend it? Can we own up to that? Can we own up to anything that was, that was nasty speech? Can we own up to certain actions that were offensive that people found out about? Can we own up to that? And can we who have been offended either cover it with love as love covers a multitude of sins or if we cannot cover it, if it continues to be an issue, can we then go to our brother or sister as the Lord tells us in Matthew 18, can we go to that person and say, here's how I understand the situation. Here's what I, th- here's what I think you said. Here's what I think you did. Correct me if I'm wrong. But if I'm right, this is grievous. This is an offense. This is a sin and it needs to be dealt with. Can we do that? Can we come fully ready to forgive when we say, this is what you did, and they say, you're right, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Absolutely. As God in Christ has forgiven me, so I will easily forgive you. What? Am I in the place of God, as Joseph says? Am I in the place of God to withhold forgiveness? I cannot be. How will we respond? In 1542, only a year after John Calvin returns to Geneva, he writes of some of the challenges that accompany his efforts at bringing Reformation through ecclesiastical discipline. His major focus, only because he was denied it regularly, was he wanted the church to be properly disciplined. He wanted the church to be reformed, not just to have the Word of God preached faithfully, but the Word of God applied faithfully in the lives of uh, church members. And he was grieved, and other ministers were grieved, that the church did not have the spiritual authority to discipline its members. That was authority that the state wanted to keep for itself. And that's actually why he, he bucked up against that, and he got kicked out of Geneva and spent some time in Strasbourg. And then Geneva wised up and said, we want you back. And so he he comes back to Geneva. And so only a year after he comes back to Geneva, he's still working on reforming ecclesiastical discipline. And he mentions a significant opponent of his by the name of Alberg. And this man, not Calvin's words, but mine, was a phony baloney, as they say. Someone who tries to, quote, shuffle money out of some. And he was trying to find for himself a position uh, as teacher, even though he uh, was a fake, and wasn't an effective teacher. And when he had come to Strasbourg, Calvin says, he extorted 20 botsen from me. Now, I don't know what, how much 20 botsen are today. I know it wasn't a lot of money because Calvin didn't have it. 
Um, and it wasn't a small amount, otherwise Calvin would have just said, forget about it. But it was some medium amount of currency, and it was significant enough for him to say, I needed this back. I can't even pay my bills. Calvin was, was always poor. He could very rarely pay his own bills. He had to sell his own books, his own books, his own library to live. But Calvin confronts the man, and Calvin writes, I told him he was the most impudent scoundrel. Those are some hard words there. I told him he was the most impudent scoundrel. The day after, he attacked me in my own house, not only with the most abusive language, but also making a furious assault. So, summarize the situation here. A man steals from Calvin. Calvin calls him on it, says, you can't be doing that. And then the man is now on the defensive, and he attacks Calvin verbally and physically. And Calvin was a very weak man, physically. I'm not sure he was able to hold his own. But he got out uh, alive. But that's not where the story ends. This man, thankfully, was taken into custody. And he's before the magistrate. Alberg found support in none other than Calvin himself. Calvin was his witness. Calvin would often do this, by the way. If people who offended him, uh, they, they were before the, the, the magistrate, he would often plead with the magistrate for a lesser sentence, for compassion. And Calvin says, when I was afterwards interceding earnestly for him with the magistrate, and he was about to be called and sent away without any further trouble, the jailer brought word that he had spoken still more outrageously against me there. Despite Calvin's efforts, the man refused to to own up to what he had done. And so we wonder which was the more remarkable, Alberg's attacks or Calvin's compassion. Dear ones, people are going to offend us. If you've lived long enough, people have done something against you. And they are of various degrees of, of pain, grief, severity, Do you love that person more than you hate that person's sin? Do you love the person who said that thing about you more than you hate the thing that was said about you? Does love lead the way? Does love safeguard the relationship irrespective of that grief, that grievous offense? Say, I love this person enough. I'm going to be spending eternity with this person. And so I'm going to work on things even now. Yes, the relationship might look different down the road. But at least we can be on the same page. We can express our love for one another. At least we can forgive and be forgiven. At least we can demonstrate compassion. At the very least, we can do this. Why? Because God didn't have to do any of that and has done it. And has given us not just a least bit of compassion, but eternal compassion, eternal mercy and grace and peace. His is an ocean of mercy, and ours is a sippy cup. Now, verses 15 and 16 are just awesome. Of course, all of the verses are. Words failed me, so awesome. There you go. Verses 15 and 16. Check out these verses. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? By absorbing the cost of offense, we are open to great gain. You notice how Paul Paul is thinking here. He's going from a grievance to, hopefully, great gain in the life of Philemon, in the life of Onesimus, in the life of Paul, in the ministry of Paul, in the ministry of Philemon, in the ministry of Onesimus, in the ministry of Christ's church. He doesn't sugarcoat Onesimus' cloak and dagger departure from Master Philemon. Onesimus' error was a real grievance, a truly costly offense. 
We don't know the answers to these questions, but who knows how many man hours Onesimus cost Philemon? Who knows how costly were Philemon's goods with which Onesimus absconded? Must have been valuable. And what would the Roman Empire say if they caught wind that there was a runaway slave who wasn't treated with the full extent of the law? Of course, they don't want the whole slavery system to be upended. And when Paul appeals to Philemon, he knows how serious this sin is. He knows how graciously costly it would be of Philemon to release Onesimus of his sins against him. He's not minimizing or rationalizing anything here. He knows what Onesimus had done. Onesimus knows what he had done. He knows it well. And that's why, again, he's leading with love here. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, engages in a bit of sanctified speculation, a bit of what-ifs, perhaps. He's, God is his own interpreter, as we sang a little bit ago. But Paul is trying to connect some uh, providential dots here. He's trying to think, why, why did all this happen? Why did Onesimus leave Philemon? Why were they estranged to begin with? What's going on? Granted, Onesimus sinned. Not going to deny it. He says, but I wonder why God allowed it. God could have stopped the sin. He could have worked on Onesimus' heart to keep him there, an obedient slave to Philemon. But Onesimus leaves. Why? I wonder why. Granted, Onesimus left with some of your valuables, Philemon, but I wonder why God allowed you to be defrauded, why God allowed you to have your property stolen. I don't know if Onesimus ever was able to return exactly what he had taken. Maybe he sold it. Maybe he pawned it off. I wonder why God is allowing all this. If Onesimus had not fled his master... He never would have come to Rome, where Paul was in chains in prison. If he had not seen Paul in chains, he never would have received faith in Christ. If he hadn't had faith in Christ, he never would have become Paul's spiritual son, so that he might be sent for the work of the gospel. This is incredible stuff. God uses Onesimus' own sin for Onesimus' salvation. He uses this grievance against Philemon for Onesimus' glory, for his good, and for everyone's in this situation. God is in the big business of great grace, turning awful, sinful episodes into stories of redemption. Last week in the evening, we considered uh, Jonah chapter 2, and how, or was it one? It was one. And how the Lord um, used Jonah's own sin for good. Remember, Jonah had fled from the Lord. He said, I'm not going to obey. I'm going to run as far away as possible. I'm going to go the opposite direction. And then he gets into a boat, and he, because of his sin, wreaks havoc upon these Gentile mariners. They didn't know. And so there's a storm, and each man is crying out to his own God, what did I do? Give me mercy. And what does God do? God saves these Gentile mariners. At the end of that text, it says that they, that they um, feared the Lord exceedingly, and that they made sacrifices and made vows. We can expect to see those men in heaven. And that wouldn't have happened if Jonah hadn't disobeyed. That doesn't mean that Jonah uh, was, was right to sin. It just means that the Lord is better than Jonah's sin. It just means that the Lord is working out all things according to the counsel of his will for Jonah's good and for these Gentile mariners' good. You imagine what would have happened to Israel if Joseph hadn't been hated and thrown into slavery. We lament, as we read the story of Joseph, we lament, don't we, that Joseph was treated like this by his very own brothers, that they are above the pit and they are having a feast together without him. And then they sell him off. 
Let's forget about him. Let's pretend that he's dead. Let's allow our dad to go into mourning for this son who's really alive. Let him grieve the death of our brother. They allowed all of this. God allowed all of this. And for him to be in prison, to be mistreated, to be falsely accused of infidelity or of fornication. He allowed all of that. Why? For the good of Israel. For the good of his own brothers. For the good of the nation. Out of him will come Moses. And Moses will redeem. God will use Moses to redeem the people out of the hand of the Egyptians. And there will be then 12 tribes who have their own allotted lands. And we, we read their story and God works powerfully in and through them. All because people hated this man and cast him off. What would have happened to Rome if Paul wasn't falsely accused and then he didn't appeal to Caesar? How will the gospel get to that center of the Roman Empire? It gets there through Paul's being mistreated, through his appeal to Caesar. And you remember, people said, well, you know, can't do anything about it. He appealed to Caesar, so he's going to go to Caesar. If only he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he would have been gotten out of prison even now. If only. But God was behind that act as well. God was behind the, sinful, the acts of these sinful men to bring the gospel to the Roman Empire. And so, we see that Christ's church works on reconciliation with faith in God's good will, good providence. Whatever the offense, the God of reconciliation can work it out for his glory and for your good, for this church's good. Husband, was your wife involved in an emotional affair with another man? Or wife, has your husband been entrenched in sexual sin? Parents, do you have a rebellious or prodigal child? Teens, have you done something embarrassing and sinful and you wonder whether or not to confess it? Oh, saint, has your reputation been dragged in the mud? Have your words and actions been twisted? Beloved, without minimizing the sin, can you open your eyes to see the possibility of great gain, of great grace to come about? Even knowing that there was great sin I recently talked with someone, not here, who shared with me that his wife had filed for divorce. I asked some questions. He had said that he didn't know why, uh, really. He had given her no reason. He wasn't unfaithful to her. He didn't know why exactly she filed for divorce and pressed a little bit. And, and he said that he thinks that it was because she could not get past the past. That how he acted in the early years of his marriage as a husband, as a father, just was too much, was too burdensome for her to carry on. She wasn't going to keep doing that. She wasn't open to the possibility of great grace, even after a rocky and sinful start. She didn't know that the Lord could do marvelous things even after significant sin, even after real grievance Costly offenses. But God, again, is in the big business of great grace, turning awful, sinful episodes into stories of redemption. Look no further than the story of our own salvation. How our own sinful grievance is used by God for our glorious gain. That God didn't leave us. Yes, he says, you are sinners. Granted, but I have just the one to save you from your sin. This is not to say that the sin is good, just that Jesus is better. And I'm not going to minimize what I had said earlier about people's actions, people's words in the last two meetings or the last handful of months. 
some of what we've said, some of what we've done, has been truly offensive, has been truly sinful, truly abominable in God's sight, truly grievous and insensitive. So let us not minimize that. But let us also be open to the idea that God can use even that, even our own sin, even our own weakness for great gain. Are you open to that? Is this the time to say, well, we're, we're too offended and we're done? Or is this the time to say, yes, we're offended, but God's not done. God's in the, biz- in the, in the business of great grace. I know it. I, I've experienced it. I know what he can do. I know what he has done. With eyes of faith, our eyes are open up to this real possibility. He has a great track record of faithfulness to his people, of reconciling his people to himself and to one another. Will you then use the last number of months as an opportunity not to move away from each other, but to draw closer and closer? Oh, that is going to be hard. Because he said that thing to me. Or I heard that she said this thing about me. I know what he did. I know what they did. Do we call it off? Well, perhaps there is much more in store that God has for us. I remember one of the remarks that former pastor Josh Owen had made when he was standing right here um, just extemporizing. Um, he had been given a gift to think. It was his, it was his last Sunday. And, and he said, I am confident, something like, I'm confident that Cross Creek has not yet entered its golden age. Which is a good thing to say because he's not saying, yeah, the, the best times were when I was here <laughs> and it's all... You know, not looking good for you when I depart. I'm thankful that he, he says something like that. Do we have the faith and the hope, trust in Jesus Christ, who is still our king, who is still head of the church, who is still head of this Cross Creek Church, that he can do marvelous, abundant, gracious, glorious things in every one of our lives and in this life of this church? That would be a great way to end, but I'm not done. Look at verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Onesimus' conversion ultimately serves the church's usefulness. He goes from useless to useful. And here is appalling pun to be remembered. Yes, even spiritual fathers may be given to a good dad pun from time to time. And that's what he has here. He's punning with Onesimus' name. The word Onesimus means useful. He was formerly useless to Philemon. In other words, he didn't live up to his name as he related to Philemon. He was ineffective. He was not a good servant. He wasn't a good person. It's like having the name truth and being a liar. It's a contradiction. He was a walking contradiction until the Lord found him, until the Lord rescued him. Does Paul have in mind how useless a slave Onesimus was, that he was lazy, that he was incapable? Maybe. Does he have in mind how spiritually useless Onesimus was to Philemon? Because when Onesimus was employed by Philemon, Onesimus was, at that time, an unbeliever. Maybe he was spiritually useless. Maybe that's what Paul has in mind. Maybe it's both. He was not a good worker, and he was an unbeliever, and so he was doubly useless to Philemon. But that's in the past. Onesimus now is a new man, literally a spiritually new person in Christ, and so he is useful to Christ. Now, you'll remember from last week that I read Colossians 4.9. In that text, Paul calls Onesimus, quote, our faithful and beloved brother. Now get this, this is amazing. 
Somewhere around 110-115 AD, Ignatius writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, and he addresses this letter to the bishop or to the pastor of these Ephesians. And the bishop or the pastor goes by the name Onesimus. Now, Paul's letter to Philemon was written likely from Rome to Ephesus or Colossae around 55 AD. Could it be? Would our view of grace really surprise us to connect these dots here, that a young runaway slave would end up an aged, faithful pastor 55 years later? Would you put it past God to do something like that? Such is the work of God's grace. Christ's church keeps serving Christ because of his ongoing restoring grace. Onesimus' story is Philemon's story. It's just a little later in time. And both of their stories succeeded Paul's own story of how God reconciled Paul to himself on the road to Damascus. They were all formerly useless, former enemies to God's glorious kingdom. And dear ones, their story is our story. We're just a little bit later in time. It is a story of all who are washed by God's overwhelming grace. He didn't save us because we were useful to Him. He saved us and then made us useful to Him. What grace this is to be used by God in His kingdom, to be a servant following the God who turns unthinkable grievance into unimaginable grace and glory. Let us never despise the small beginnings, but let us instead always open our eyes wider and ever wider to the possibilities of great grace, of great usefulness to Christ. I wonder how we will be used by God. Only grace will tell. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you who reconcile the world to yourself, you who have reconciled us to you and us to each other. We thank you for this word of grace. We thank you that Christ has, has paid it all. We pray, Lord, that we would be useful to you, useful in your kingdom, that we would forgive one another as you, God, have forgiven us in Christ Jesus. Give, our, give us hearts that are tenderhearted. Give us hearts that are full of love, that we might appeal on the basis of love for our brother, for our sister, that we would be reconciled, and that you, God, would get all the glory, because all reconciliation is a grace from you, our great God. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.